that better? <laughs> now you can hear me. So I'm going to read the rest of chapter 10. And um, uh, I know it's a big passage, but hang in there because, as you will see, it's very relevant for us today as Christians or if we're looking to understand who Christ is. It tells us how to live the Christian life with great confidence to live the Christian life despite all the struggles, despite the challenges, despite the suffering, the reproach and the rejection. How does a person go on to maturity, even with the pressures of life? How does your Christian faith conquer? So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, 19 through to uh, 20, uh, 39. Therefore, brothers, uh, if we... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching for we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to the reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. And what I want to focus on this morning is verse, verses 19 to 25. And there are four things involved there that, uh, when brought together, combine into two principles to bring us great confidence, to bring us encouragement, which is what we all need, and to live the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love, those three, and added to that is the fourth of good works or loving service. And when you have these, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, your life will be lived in this way. You'll have a joy that is not fleeting. 
or fades over time from different life pressures. You'll have a peace that goes deeper than any other peace offered from this world, anywhere at any time by anyone. And you will be understand that you are so loved and that you'll be smiling and rejoicing and you won't stop understanding that and receiving that despite all your pains. That's what the hope is. That's what the faith is about. Is that what you really desire? Is that what you really want for your life? Well, that's why we want to look at these four important aspects as individuals as well as looking at it together. And uh, we'll do that in, in due course. But first, I want to briefly talk about, I need a few minutes to talk about that, that warning passage that follows on in verse 26 to the end of the chapter. In fact, there are five warning passages in the letter to the Hebrews. And this is regarded by most commentators as the one that is most severe and sobering. The writer is anxious that the listeners pay careful attention, that they don't, uh, they don't miss out, neglect the salvation of Christ uh, because of their unbelief, because of apostasy and compromise. And of course, apostasy is not just turning away, but it's turning away deliberately, understanding the truth about God. And today, I, I put it to you, many uh, don't have the knowledge of God. They don't understand who God is, uh, even though they might uh, turn away in some ways. They are not like Judas, who deliberately betrayed the Lord uh, willingly. Uh, and what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is faith and God are serious concerns, serious matters, not something to trifle with. Many don't really seek God or know God. And that's part of the cultural conditioning of our society. And the warning passages are there to remind us as Christians that we can all go away in some way, go astray. It's a bit like parents, you know, they encourage their children to play nicely uh, with their friends, but they also warn the consequences if they don't uh, and they have some bad behaviour. And we need to be warned. And the intent is to encourage us to persevere. And right at the end of this chapter, you'll notice that the writer gives us that confidence. You know, we're not those who shrink back, but we have that faith and therefore we'll preserve our souls. And the reason I want to point this out is that we, we need to understand why people turn away from God, why people reject Christianity as a way of life. Some people might be described as very irreligious that is, they don't want anything to do with any sort of religion. And they probably say things like this. I feel Christianity is just too hard. It's too difficult to live out. So I'm not going to even think about it. I don't want you to even talk about it. Uh, I'll just fail. I heard one guy tell me, he says, I don't want to go into that church. I said, I'll blacken the walls. Okay, you know, but it's not that hard, really. Or some may say, well, look, I see and I hear many so-called Christians, religious people, and they seem to pass judgment. That's why I don't want anything to do with them. Just look at that massacre in New Zealand. There's the problem. These religious fanatics, we have to get over this, you know, and just get along with other people, regardless of other faiths. Or there's some that say that many Christians are so narrow-minded, they're so, so judgmental, so abusive, 
just look at all the problems that have been highlighted with this Royal Commission into uh, childhood abuse, institutional abuse by people who belong to churches. You know, I know people who, who don't profess to be Christians, but they actually live better lives uh, and are caring and loving. So why should I examine Christianity? They're the irreligious. And then there are those that, who seem quite religious. They go to church or they have their club and they read their Bible and they say, well, I believe that God will accept me. I'll be okay. Uh, as long as I don't offend others, as long as I look, I, I, I sort of do what I, what I think is right, I'm okay. I'm living the good life. Perhaps you've heard that said. Now, the basis in both these views, the irreligious and the religious, can you see it? It's what I believe. It's what I think. And the irreligious are right that, you know, we can't measure up. God's laws and demands are, are there. They're clear. But we, we know there's one who has done something for us, that Jesus measured up perfectly. And we can, therefore, we can do what seems impossible. We can be right with God. Christians aren't the judges, but we're to judge ourselves, given that the gospel is not exclusive, it's, it's inclusive. There are no divisions with the gospel. Either you accept it or you reject it. And we recognize the Bible tells us all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all need to repent. And all need to be saved. In fact, Jesus came to save the lost. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save. And he wants no one to perish. And here's the thing. You know, if, if people, if you're deciding what's right and wrong, if you're saying it doesn't matter about your wrongs, the Bible is saying the very opposite. It does matter. God does care about what's right and what's wrong. And... And to talk like that is really just naive and unsensible. And here's why. As soon as someone says, don't insist on your idea, your ideas or on spiritual issues or moral issues, then who's going to be determining what's right and wrong? It's all bound up in what everybody thinks is right and wrong. And there might be 25 million Australians that say, this is, right, you know, this is different from this or that. You know, can we understand if, if that guy, uh, Branton Tarrant, who shot those Muslim worshippers in New Zealand, in Christchurch, can you understand what he was thinking? Uh, he saw himself, this is what's been reported, he saw himself as doing good. For he described himself as a regular white man. And he speculated he might get 27 years in prison like Nelson Mandela. And at the end of it, be awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. So you sure, you know, insist on my ideas, not your ideals, and we'll avoid the mass shootings. And we'll just all get along fine, won't we? It's naive. And it's just ignoring the truth that the problem is in the human heart as to who or what that person worships. But even using some basic logic, as soon as someone says, because I say so, that's right, that's wrong, and don't tell me otherwise, 
they're hoping they can push their view. And they're saying, well, don't you push your view. But you see, they're doing the very thing they're saying that you're not to do. They're insisting on their atheistic view of world, of what is right. And a lot of people uh, do that. In fact, they're culturally conditioned to do that, perhaps, without even knowing it. Let me illustrate that. I come across an article uh, not so long back, uh, advertised, this was the heading, Adverts for healthy fast food are bad for children and fast food adverts should be banned. And the reason is that young people are watching McDonald's advert for healthy food, you know, pineapple, water and chicken nuggets in the midst of a Peppa Pig show. And and what they're saying is that the research shows that Children are still conditioned to eat unhealthy food despite the adverts being uh, for healthy food. It said, old habits die hard. Even if you promote the healthy McDonald's Happy Meals to children, all it did was simply increase their liking for fast food overall. And it's the same for adults. You know, as soon as uh, you walk into McDonald's, the side of the uh, hamburgers and the fries and uh, seeing the soft serve, uh, we might not just, we might steer away from the healthy stuff. And the problem is so evident. That's what this research is saying because look at the obesity levels, they're rising in our society. Yeah, sure, genetics can play a role, but it's the cultural conditioning that plays a big role. And the article pointed out it's much harder for children to resist that, to be self-controlled to resist the cravings of high sugar and high fat and high salt foods, even if if healthy food is promoted. And that's much like the culture today, that even Christians, they want to push aside the truths of the gospel and live and crave after the fast food idols. And that's why those warnings are there in Hebrews. We need to give attention to the encouragements to live the Christian life. Now let, let's look at what, what this is saying here in, in, uh, from verse 19 and, or verse 22. We're called to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. There are four things that are working together here in terms of the gospel dynamics and there's two principles involved. We must always start, this is the first principle, we must always start with our standing with our position, with our status in Christ. Who are you in Christ? Who are you, really? Well, you're chosen. You're privileged. You're a highly favoured, loved child of God with, who has been made perfect in God's sight through Christ, who has no record of wrongs, who has no past conviction to haunt you, who is blessed with the knowledge and truth of God that God wants you to be with Him. And He loves you with an everlasting love. And He won't stop calling out to you to love Him in return. You need to believe that. That's your status, your standing. Now, 
when you compare what it was like back in Israel in the Old Testament days, that drawing near to God was actually a very difficult thing. It was never thought possible you could really get close to God. Even the high priest, he could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And if God is the, God, the, the, the awesome God who shakes mountains, who created this world, who's the judge of all the earth, then how can we ever possibly get near him? And that's what the worshippers needed to understand from the Old Testament days. Just occasionally they could draw near to the meeting place where God was, was deemed to be and that they should do that. But today we can do it every day, every hour, every minute. We can come and draw near to God and come and see him and understand and talk to him and relate with him. But how does it work when we're guilty of wrongs and deserve to be rejected? When we're right to believe that we can't measure up to his standard and be his friends? We're correct in our thinking that even if we did at one point in time, coming again and again uh, to be made perfect as he is, would be difficult. Our good deeds won't count if we're locked away in a prison. But this is the good news one person has done for us. That Jesus did something very unusual in the way the world thinks, that he took the penalty for our wrongs. He justified us. He paid the penalty, So even when we were incapable. And that's what we're talking about when the, the blood is shed. The death is the right payment for our sins, the full payment for our sins, for all our wrongs, past, present and future. And so this truth that we stand cleansed, redeemed, without sin, gives us boldness. But it also, it, he, he, it tells us he made us his friends. We're not only justified, but we're also uh, made uh, friends. He's provided a new and living way, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, which gives us access to God. Now, all other ways uh, don't lead to God, but this is a, a new way, a living way, where we're acceptable, we're reconciled, we're made friends with God. And no other man, uh, no, no other man-made God or created thing can provide this access, only Jesus. Jesus justified, Jesus reconciles so that we have no condemnation as we come near to God. And that gives us boldness. That gives us access that our sins are done away with and we're friends. God sees us no longer as enemies, we're friends. No longer condemned, penalties are gone. There's no record of wrongs. We're no longer a sinner. We're now completely right without sin. We're no longer impure. We're now acceptable in his sight. And this is what the Father said about Jesus, this is what he's saying about us. This is my beloved child. In him or her, I'm well pleased. And this principle, this truth that Hebrews is saying, you know, we draw near to God because of the blood, through the curtain, through his, because of his death. This principle must be the first thing each time 
If you say you're a Christian, this must be understood. This is really the heart of God. You have a new status. You have a, 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 a position, a standing as a child of God, as a Christian. And this is what's outlined again and again all through uh, the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Uh, let, let me quote a few versions. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Colossians 1.13-14. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to where? The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ so that you're no longer aliens and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with saints and the members of the household of God. Peter, once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You see, this is the analogy. We are... Our citizenship, yes, we're citizens of Australia, but we're also citizens of heaven. And as citizens, we have rights and we have privileges. If you're a citizen of Australia, you have rights and privileges in the, in the laws of land, access to help in certain ways. Just look at the Apostle Paul. He is a citizen of Rome. So when they lock him up in a Philippian jail, he says to the jailer, come here, um, you know I'm a citizen of Rome. And all of a sudden there's fear and trembling. Because the Roman laws said you can't lock up a Roman citizen without a trial first. And so the writers of the New Testament are saying that when you become a Christian, your status changes. You are a citizen of heaven. And there's no in-between. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. The first thing, the first principle is your standing before God. The second principle here is one of a process. We are justified, we are reconciled, and we are sanctified. You are being made perfect or made holy uh, and called to be perfect. Even though God sees you in Christ as perfect, nevertheless, there's a process that's going on and is to go on in our lives. And this is a call to act. We don't just say, well, that's wonderful, I've got conferred this status. Now we need to act. Uh, and the, the theologian, theologians call this sanctification, made holy, being saintly. Let me read those verses. Let us draw near from verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews is saying four things, as I pointed out. Faith, hope, love, good works. These things go together. They should be something that, we, that works together so that your conscience can be clear, uh, that you're washed and continually being washed, that your hope is certain as we see the day approaching and we need to con keep confessing 
uh, that God is faithful, so we need to be faithful. And you, you love because you have been loved and you are loved. And you need to stir up your faith and hope and love in yourself and with others and not neglect meeting together as some may do. It's all about uh, encouraging one another in our words and with good works, which can cover a whole lot of things because God has acted and continued to act for you. Now, we, some, sometimes we forget that this is a dynamic, that it is something that sort of works together. All these things work together. If we promise ourselves um, just that, oh, yeah, well, that's great. We're going to look at that next week. No, we need to work at it now and continue to work at it. And this is, again, a major teaching of the Bible. We, we find it in the words of Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John. Uh, just for example, Jesus gave the analogy in John 15 of the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, says Jesus, and you're the branches. And the truth is that the branches are grafted onto the vine. The branches can't do anything without Jesus, the vine. That's the status, right? You're justified, you're reconciled, you're redeemed. But the vine is not just there to look pretty. It's not just producing leaves. The call is to produce fruit. Jesus said, I appointed you to go and produce fruit, fruit that will last. That's the way to life. And the dynamic is allowing the spirit, the sap from the, from the vine to flow through the branches to produce that fruit. And from these words in Hebrews, we're not just thinking about taking action, uh, you know, down the track, but we need to be active now. Let us do it with a sincere heart, with, with a true heart, with a deliberate intent. You see, to have a sincere heart means to have this inner sincerity. You don't just say, oh yeah, that's, that's great, isn't it? To be pure, to be working at it with no mixed motives and allow yourself not to be put off with the distractions of life while we have opportunity. You know, one of the pictures that the writer brings out here is uh, the journey to Israel, the promised land. He, he, he draws on the Psalms and Psalm 8 is one of them. He says, see that you don't harden your heart like they did at Meribah, like they did in the journey through the wilderness. And what does Psalm 8 say? Um, uh, while God was present with them, they failed in many ways to accept his provision, but Psalm 8 saying, see to it. As long as it's called today that you exhort one another every day and you don't harden your heart. And the analogy in chapter 10 is another um, contrast. Is what happened when a person uh, touched something that was unclean, like a dead body? And even though a citizen could approach God, that person needed to be cleansed. You can't approach God if you were soiled, if you had dirt on you, or you had done something and it was unclean. There was, there's, there's these two things, clean and unclean. And so there was a, a procedure, there was a way of getting back to be cleansed. 
um, and you needed to be washed uh, with certain water, be sprinkled with it, and to wash your whole body. There was no special sin offering needed. Uh, The sin required blood shedding. But defilement was purged, cleansed by water. No priest was needed. Any clean person could perform the rite. uh, And then the unclean person was helped to be clean. But they'd be sprinkled with this water of purification, water that owed its efficacy, its uh, power to the great sin offering person to become clean again would would need to follow that and that's the background to verse 22 the reality is that we can't stay clean can we sin infects our lives we we our thoughts our motives the heart is deceitful and we need this washing and this regeneration ongoing and the good news is that we have, this is the second since, since we have entered, we can enter in by the blood, but we, since we also have a high priest there, standing there in heaven for us, we have one who helps us when we're tempted. We have one who understands our weakness and yet is without sin. And we have one who is praying there, interceding for us, to strengthen us. So this is the good news, that we've not only been forgiven, but we can be cleansed and continually ongoing cleansing. We don't need to go through this procedure of washing, but we need to come to God, confessing our sins, repenting in our actions and thoughts and words and drawing near to him. And we have the confidence to do that because our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed with pure water. God provides the direction. We take the action. The Spirit works in a person, so we take the opportunities to allow the Spirit to continue to work in us. And that's the dynamic. And and how does it look? How does it really look? Well, as you come to God, as you know you're cleansed and forgiven, so you find peace and joy and love. And so then you want to be able to serve and to to give as God has given you, as as God has blessed you. You want to be showing your thanks to God. And so you can serve others, which who in turn see this uh, dynamic going and they too are encouraged to serve. And it grows as the work, as the church works to serve God and serve one another and serve the community. So this grace comes more and more and overflows and, and the, um, overcomes the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of sin. And what happens with this gospel dynamic, because the foundation is the gospel and the work of Jesus, it carries on in you and in your life, it it overflows into the community. It overflows in in your life and it changes you. That's what the writer is saying. You know, again and again, all through this letter, he's saying, this is what you really need, this, this truth to go deep into your thinking into your life back in chapter 5 for example he's saying you you know you believers you should be eating meat now you're not mature enough you're still back in the baby stage drinking milk you're hard of hearing you're not holding on to the means of grace that God provides and you need to take hold of those means of grace and to grow in that grace 
And, and how do you do that? Well, you feed on his word. You chew on it. You meditate on it. You read it like every day. And, and think about how you apply it in your life. And your fellowship helps you grow. If it's possible, you know, think about this, you know, like the kids' church people are meeting and they're talking about how they can spur one another on and, and, and help in that ministry or the, the music people are meeting and they're encouraging each other and spurring one another on to, to say how can we serve and minister to one another and to the church. And we're communicating, offering help to one another and it, it, it helps us grow. We, we, it gets us enthused. You can imagine... You know, we, we, we struggle sometimes perhaps with our volunteers and, you know, maybe there's one or there's two hands ca- coming to volunteer for something. But you can imagine, you know, that one or two then turns to three or four or five or six. All of a sudden there's a whole flood of hands putting up and saying, I want, I want to serve. And all of a sudden some, some people got the problem saying, well, we don't have enough things for people to do to serve. Taking hold of these means of grace. You know, as much as sometimes people get sincere, we find that we aren't dressed right. That's, that's really the, the, the need for cleansing. You're not getting clean. You're not allowing the Spirit to sanctify, to change you. You know, at times I've been out in the garden, I'm digging away, and of course there's a bit of water in the ground, and a bit of dirt gets on the shoes, and... I'm, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I've got all that knocked off, the mud and the dirt. But the reality, I didn't achieve the clean status. And then as I come inside, someone's just mopped the floor. And then the voice booms out, very stern, I'm unclean. It's almost the Old Testament, fear, trembling, lightning, shaking, smoke and... <laughs> I'm the legal status, I'm the owner of this house, but that's where I want to be, but I can't be because I'm not clean. Take off your shoes. Otherwise, you won't be on that holy ground. (laughs) Do you see? And my sons and my son-in-law, they're actually more sanctified and reformed than I am. I'm learning slowly. You You get the gist here. I'm accepted through Christ and therefore I want to obey him. I want to thank him. Every other religion, every other uh, worldview is I obey first and therefore I'll be accepted. Christianity is I'm accepted and therefore I'll obey. And And this was Martin Luther's fundamental insight that it's the latter principle, that principle of the, the irreligious and the religious that is the default mode of the human heart the heart continues to work even after our conversion even after we've accepted the knowledge of Christ and want to follow him that that's we believe the gospel at one level we're saved by grace and not by works but at a deeper level we don't and we're still trying to patch up our righteousness and hide our spiritual nakedness And that's why we need to let this truth get deep into our lives. That's why the gospel enables you to have this unique blend of humility as well as boldness and joy. 
and faith is a key. Without faith, we fail to rejoice in God's righteousness. Without faith exercise, we can't live this Christ-like life. We don't build on our justification. And we'll never change. We'll never come to grips with the, with the, with the nature of our hearts. Jeremiah said it very well. The heart is deceitful above all, desperately wicked. Who can know it? But God does know it. And the gospel says, I'm so lost that Jesus had to die to save me. But also, I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die and save me. And that changes our identity. That transforms me from deep within. And in a world that seeks to conform us to its ways, that's what we need to be transformed, to renew our minds. You know, it is complex because we live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. We love the world, and yet the world will hate us. And we're not the creators of of a new world at all, but we do know that God will redeem and renew the world eventually. And so how does Christian faith conquer? Well, it's God's power working within us. And Paul writes a very similar thing in Ephesians about this internal renovation that we need. You know, and we think about this. I'm just going to read it and we close and we'll have a prayer. But think about what God might do in you today. Think about what God might do in you and in others, in us corporately as Exchange Church. And as you think about that, just imagine that God could double that. God could triple it. God could go far beyond what you think is possible. Listen to this, Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we hear you speaking clearly through the writer to the Hebrews. That is the blood that cleanses us from all sin. That is Jesus that stands there, the high priest, who intercedes for us and helps us understand that we can have the confidence, that we can have the boldness, that we can have the joy and the love that you've offered to us. Help us to serve you, to honor you, to respond to you in a way Uh, that is fitting for this grace. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, uh, let's uh, enjoy a cup of coffee and tea or cake or whatever. Oh, you've got to say something. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rob. Um, Just as the guys come back and just uh, play for us another song, um, a couple of quick things. Uh, when we pack up today, we're not going to pack up the green chairs straight away, just something different. Um, only the red chairs are all we're going to pack up initially. Just to, Some people like to still sit for a few minutes uh, post-service, so um, if we just leave the green chairs out for a while and uh, pack the red chairs up, that will be terrific. Excellent there. Um, yeah, thanks, Rob, for talk, talking to us about the confidence that Christ gives us. That, that is the great hope of the gospel, is this rock-solid confidence that he gives to us uh, so that we can live going forward. Don't forget also there's those Easter invites out there. Please uh, take some of those. And also um, prayer this afternoon at 5 o'clock in the lounge. Thanks.
going to stand together and sing through the precious blood. That's 